Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of New York Times bestselling author and award-winning environmental reporter, Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott, and this is Welcome to Florida. Craig writes a column every Thursday. It publishes floridaphoenix.com online. Craig, I thought the column, uh, the most recent one, was as good a starter course on Florida politics and why Florida is the way it is, the relationship between development and the environment as any I've read. And I couldn't believe MCORS is back. Yes, yes. In a way, it never left. But yeah, I com- in the column, I compared it to Michael Myers from the Halloween movies that, mm-hmm. you know, you think you've killed it off. Nope, no, nope, it's just crawled away and it's coming back bigger and better than ever. So the the MCORS toll roads, the, the no- roads to nowhere, the roads to ruin, the billionaire boulevards, they passed a law earlier this year repealing the whole thing, saying, Great you know, news. never mind, yes. never mind all the millions of dollars we've spent. Sorry, that was a big mistake. But they left one of them still alive, one of the three still alive, the Northern Turnpike Extension, which is supposed to start from where the turnpike currently ends in Wildwood, near the villages. I, I meant to mention that, and I've, I've left it mm-hmm. out. Uh, and will take you to somewhere in North Florida to end up. And the DOT let people in North Florida know, hey, we're thinking about these routes by passing out flyers for an informational meeting in, in December in Lacanto and and um, places like that. And people looked at the routes, people in Levy County in particular looked at the routes and said, that's my house. That's my that's my forest. That's my land. That's mm-hmm. my, you know, we're you're going to destroy me to give some developer easy access to, to new homes he's building. And they they were very upset. One lady called me, uh, mentioned in the column, she called me, she was, she's one of those people who, she's not quite cussing, but she's coming close. <laughs> and so she said, it's like a freaking slap in the play, in the face. And then immediately apologized, excuse my language. And so I, I wrote about that and wrote about the, the idea, you know, the governor had made some idiotic comment about, you know, oh, a road is just a road. No, a road is a choice. It's you choose where it goes. You choose what you destroy. You choose what you want to save. And these politicians who approved this and the legislature, they were making the choice that we're going to favor this billionaire developer over the people who live there now. And we're just going to steamroll right over. Right. No real need for these roads. No real purpose for these roads. There's no real terminus. It's just sort of we're just going to start and we're going that way. It's not like there's some sort of underserved city or do i mean there's no this is a pure personal enrichment project for developers and a demonstration of how the state department of transportation largely pulls these things out of thin air or at the suggestion of developers and of course the road building industry is more than happy to go along with it and and i remember from our land giant communities episode, a, a discussion about how powerful essentially the the asphalt and road building and construction mm-hmm. uh, industries are in this state. And, and they are taking taxpayer money from everyone, from Craig Pittman in St. Pete, from Chad Scott in Fernandina Beach, and giving it to developers and road builders to build roads all over the state that are totally unnecessary. And this is just another example of really a history of doing that in Florida. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's after the column ran, somebody pointed out to me that the DOT for years has been trying to add an extension onto the onto the turnpike to extend it northward. And every single time it's come up, people in those areas say, we don't want it. We don't mm-hmm. want this new road coming through and spreading sprawl through the rural area that we, we like it the way it is. And they have yeah. stopped it every time. So Here's, you know, fingers crossed that they stop it again. Right. And you made a great point in the column that roads are choices for the governor or for anyone to say, oh, a road is a road. Because this conversation came up with the infrastructure bill and I guess the secretary of uh, transportation at the federal government was talking about how the infrastructure bill was going to undo some historical wrongs about where roads Mm -hmm. have been placed Roads in this country are an example of systemic racism, structural racism, just like the courts, the cops, the cities do any sort of research on I-95 through Overton in Miami. The same thing happened in Jacksonville. The same thing happened in Los Mm -hmm. Angeles, St. Louis, Chicago, everywhere across this country. Interstates were I-75 in St. Petersburg. Same thing. 
purposely routed through thriving black communities to destroy those communities, to avoid the white communities. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the road building in this state, again, it's one of these layers you peel back and you understand, oh my gosh. And, and again, how you describe these as choices and how, you know, we're going to choose development, asphalt and concrete mm-hmm. over open space, communities, conservation and the environment. It, it is really a microcosm of so much that goes on in this state and how development and industry and business almost always win out. And, and here's a, a small group of folks. God bless them. And again, this is Trump country. This is DeSantis country. This is not like, uh, you know, the the progressive fringe. These are not tree huggers. No, no. no. Yeah. this is that base standing up and saying, wait a minute, we don't want this. What is going on here? Yeah. Yeah. FloridaPhoenix.com. Check it out. An enlightening explanation, really, about so much of how Florida has come to be the way it be, which takes us to our (laughs) guest. Scott Satterwhite is the co-author of Punk House in the Deep South. 309PunkProject.org is the website. You can find him on Instagram, Facebook, at 309 Punk Project. A few things to lay the foundation here. 309 refers to 309 Sixth Avenue in Pensacola, the physical address of this house. And we're going to talk right. a lot about zines. Zines are sort of like homemade, small subculture magazines. magazines. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So pick it up from there, Craig. Where did you connect to this story? Well, I mean, I'm from Pensacola. And and uh, so I picked up this book with great interest to read about this punk house in my hometown, which sort of has this reputation for being you know, the buckle on the Bible belt, this real conservative <laughs> town. But here in this, here in this, the heart of this very conservative area, they had this punk house where uh, people were living communally and were uh, playing loud, lots of loud music yeah. and, uh, uh, you know, sometimes promoting anarchy. So, uh, and probably annoying their neighbors tremendously, but it was a, it was a very interesting look at a, at a sort of an underground movement in Pensacola. Great. Well, let's head to Pensacola. We'll talk to Scott and find out what a punk house is. Scott, I, I found your book really intriguing because I'm I'm from Pensacola. You're writing about my hometown there. A lot of people sort of set the scene for us because a lot of people would not necessarily think of Pensacola as a place to find a punk house, uh, even if they knew what a punk house was. So how did it wind up there and what it, what is a punk house? Well, first, I'll start off with the definition. Uh, the punk, a punk house is, yeah, as the name implies, a, a house where punks live. But it's more than that. If we just describe it as where punks live, the punks can live anywhere, of course. Uh, people that are into punk or listen to music and, you know, the, the, in the genre, then, of course, that could be two people that listen to punk and they happen to share an apartment. That's not quite a punk house. Uh, five people who happen to share an apartment. That's not quite a punk house. It's more something you know when you feel it. Uh, it doesn't mean any of that isn't one, uh, that you can have a punk house with two people or it could be a punk house <laughs> with 20 people. Uh, that It's more you know it when you feel it. it. I would describe it a little bit closer to a bit of a commune. Uh, me and my co-author, we, uh, we argue about this sometimes. Co-author <laughs> and I, we argue about this sometimes. But uh, it does definitely draw its roots in, you know, in communal living. And that's what it is, is a bunch of people that are living communally, generally. And it has a lot of the ups and downs of communal living, everything that you can imagine with multiple roommates, uh, but also the positive things of living with an intentional family, which is probably a little bit closer uh, to the description. Somewhere between intentional family, a commune in the city, usually, and a yeah, a group of people, a house where punks live. <laughs> so that would be a punk house. And you might expect that to be in Miami, for instance, or even Jacksonville. But Pensacola, I'm saying this as a native, seems like an unlikely place to find such a such an establishment. Yeah. <laughs> I can call it that. <laughs> well, it's definitely an establishment now. Uh, and I would say the reason for that is because, you know, as you know, you know, Pensacola is generally seen as a conservative town, uh, that it's a uh, military town uh, because it has a uh, very old military base has been there, the Naval Air Station, and there's lots of connections to all of that. It's in the Deep South, too. You know, people generally see us conservative. But 
I would reframe some of that because the way that we generally see these areas is through electoral politics and how people are elected. And I think as most of us know, most people don't actually vote. Uh, and if we general, if we see these areas by the people that are elected to office, uh, then it does have a conservative feel to it. But then when you change it around and you take out the, the politics, then it turns into something that's a little bit different uh, in, in these areas. And anytime that you have any kind of conservative town, then you also have a, a counter culture that flourishes underneath there. I can't think of one place that doesn't have that, uh, that doesn't have some kind of concert or counterculture, unless it's been brutally smashed to the ground. And Pensacola has had some of those things in the past where they're yeah. brutally smashed. But well, Pensacola is, is one of those places where it's politically conservative, but I think it's socially very liberal. It's a port yeah. city. You've got that sort of whole, you know, live and let live beach lifestyle. Yeah, there yeah. too, and a lot of the people who wound up in the punk house are, are ex, were ex-military folks too, weren't they? Trying yeah, to yeah. Get out from under that. Yeah, I was in the Navy myself for eight years, and uh, for as long as I lived in three or nine, I was in the in the Navy. And one of the similarities with that, I'll say, is that with uh, my military service, what I found was one of the reasons why I joined, and one of the reasons why a lot of people joined, was because you were looking to be a part of something bigger than than you yeah and also you're looking for some kind of family most most folks who join the military not everybody but a lot of folks who join the military come from broken homes broken families uh don't have a lot of other prospects out there in the world at least in the enlisted part uh don't have a lot of other prospects and again that's not everybody but that's a generalization uh but that also is the case you know for for punk that punk brings a lot of misfits into it uh, a lot of people that might not fit in other places that feel rejected dejected and, you know, for those reasons, I think that's one of the reasons why Pensacola itself had that kind of scene, because it's pretty easy to get dejected uh, and rejected in a city like Pensacola and to not really find your people. Where are your people? You know, if you're queer in Pensacola, where are you going to find your people? Uh, if you're uh, a misfit, you have a weird haircut, uh, you think differently than what the political establishment thinks, uh, then where are you going to fit in? And punk is one of those places where people do find find their find your people and find your family similar to the military too but if you look in that book though i mean there's a lot of folks that were in the military or were kids of people in the military yeah i'd say probably at least half of the people in the book have some direct connection to the military uh so and it's like pensacola too but you think about that too that what the military does and what the military brings to just about every town where the military is is a cosmopolitan culture. You know, if you wonder why when you go to uh, when you go to Enterprise, Alabama, why they have all these Siam uh, Siam Thai restaurants, or why you have all these international places, Filipino restaurants, and all this stuff, it's because of military. You know, if you wonder why some of these uh, areas were ultimately why the schools were integrated, it's because the military it was there and in the military pushed that. So for you know for many reasons, the military does bring a, a bit of a cosmopolitan culture, and it certainly did with Pensacola. So you had people that were living in in California who came to, from California and moved to Pensacola and said, hey, I just saw this one punk band. Do you have any punk bands over here? He said, no, let's do it. <laughs> I'm sorry, this is how they did it over there. And so I think that might be one of the reasons why it exists over here in Pensacola. Well, you, you touched on this a little bit, but to, to make it clear, the definition of a punk, of course, Dirty Harry, you know, uh, are you feeling lucky, punk? Uh, I'm I'm 46. Uh, it's not that. It's I, not I that. Think, you know, when I when I hear I punk, know. I think New York, late 70s, Dead Kennedys. You know that that sort of thing, a, a musically influenced deal. What is a punk? My definition of punk is it deals a lot closer to an idea of freedom. Uh, personal individual freedom, the freedom to be who you want, so to you know get whatever haircut you want. I can't. Yeah, bald now, so it matter, but, um, yeah, no, no mohawk for you. Yeah, <laughs> you got a lint hawk in the back. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so it's more than the haircut, or more than the sartorial choices that people make, or where they decide to get a safety pin pierced through their face. You know, but more. It has to deal with you know, your freedom. So if you want to shock people, I mean, that might be it. If you want to. Uh, listen to loud music that obviously is the big part of it most of us come to punk through the music of course you know but it doesn't necessarily define us because i know a lot of people listen to loud aggressive music that, are, that i wouldn't call punks but i'll also say this too that i have no uh, copyright on the definition so what i think of as a punk is not what somebody else says and somebody else can totally throw my definition in the trash and they would be 
they would be correct <laughs> in doing so because yeah, I, I don't, I'd be suspect of anybody who could perfectly define what a punk is, but my definition of it is people living their lives as freely and as ethically as possible. Mine deals a little bit more with activism, the feeling that people are closer to the activist side of punk. And that's how I came to punk. I came to punk through uh, bands like Bikini Kill in the early 90s, uh, feminist uh, punk and that kind of stuff. Uh, even Nirvana, you know, I mentioned in the in the book was was my introduction to punk. And then through there, you know, it gravitated towards uh, towards more traditional punk bands. Uh, but that was my introduction to it, where people that were standing up against homophobia, who were standing up against racism, uh, standing up against sexism. And that's how I saw punk. But there are certainly punks that are, you know, that think it's just about the music and take the politics out of it, uh, including some of the founders of punk, uh, members of the Sex Pistols. <laughs> you know, certainly they're definitely not role models in many ways. But <laughs> it's, yeah, but still, you know, people have very different mm-hmm. definitions. So it's hard for me to really say exactly what it is, except for. Uh, again, going back to the other definition, you know when you see it. Were there particular elements of 309 that made it attractive to people who were who were into punk? Uh, or was the house itself something special or was it the people in it that made it special? Well, I'll say the most attractive thing about living in 309 was the rent was cheap as hell. <laughs> you, know, uh, the, you have an old house in downtown Pensacola. And this is before the hurricanes wiped out houses and made the housing market go up. And then after, you know, of course, the recent waves of housing uh, crises have also made prices go up. But when I first moved into the house, the house is up $395, now a split between six people. Uh, it wasn't hard to come up with the $50, $60 that it took to live there. I'm not doing the math in my head, but something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it wasn't that hard to come up with the with rent and wasn't that hard to come up with uh, the utilities and those things. So that would be part of it. But of course, we wanted to make sure that people who were living there were people that we actually wanted to live with. So it wasn't just some rando who needed to have a place that was cheap because, uh, of course, lots of people could do that. And lots of houses are like that, that aren't punk houses, just where you have a lot of people there have roommates because they need somebody to live in the house. We were a bit more intentional than the people that we asked to live in the house. I was very thankful to be asked to live in the house. And I lived in the house actually right next door. 309 is the big one. 311, as my co-author described it, was the doghouse for 309. (laughs) I uh, moved in there uh, at the request of a couple of roommates who said not only did a room open up, but they wanted wanted me to live over in the house. So I was happy to, uh, to be asked to live there. This is one of those moments where I forgot what the actual question was. <laughs> I, I was agree. asking if the house, if the house is what attracted people to it, or if the people in the house were what oh, sort yeah. of made it special. Yeah, because you because you had people getting off, like getting off a train and just oh, yeah. wandering in. Well, people that got off the train knew about it through different channels. Uh, so I guess there's two different people, groups of people that would have lived there. So there would have been people that had moved into the house and actually paid rent and lived in the rooms. And then you had, uh, so that would be the traditional roommates. Uh, I actually never really thought of it as in a tiered way until now. But, but then you had other people that happened to be coming through town. We're going to be living there for, or staying in town for a couple of weeks. Maybe they're in bands and band dropped them off. Uh, one instance had some friends who got arrested and then their band got left without them. Uh, so they ended up staying in Pensacola. I actually lived in Pensacola for a couple of years after that. And my co-author, his the reason he was in Pensacola is because his band broke up very angrily and he was uh, personally left at Pensacola and uh, dropped off on, on uh, two weeks into a two-month tour. Uh, the Yikes. band broke up and he was stuck over in this town. He was from Berkeley and stuck in this little town uh, that, most people had heard of before. Uh, and yeah, and he ended up finding his people over there. People who set up the show, they ended up having him stay there. Uh, not at three and I'm in another house, but anyway, but yeah, we did have people that jumped off a train and came over there and how they found out about 309 was because we were listed in what was called the, there's this underground publication uh, called the crew change guide. Uh, and this was a publication that was uh, circulated through other train hoppers, uh, modern day hobos. And they circulated this and they would update it every once in a while. And usually every year or so somebody would update it and it would be hand printed. Uh, You can't find this online. I'm pretty sure you can even find it online now too, because people are pretty strong about taking it down because they don't want it to circulate. But it's this underground publication that really was underground. And they uh, listed these places, you know, that that would be safe for you to go to. So if you went to, uh, to, 
Mariana, you know, don't jump off the train over here because the police are wild and they'll get you. Uh, if you happen to go through Fort Walton Beach, try and look up this one guy. He'll let you stay in his house. Uh, and if you land in Pensacola, uh, there's this one cafe it's called end of the line. And there's a good chance the people that are working there, if they're covered in tattoos, then they'll give you a uh, free coffee. Uh, and there's a house around the corner where there's a good chance you'll be able to sleep on the porch. Uh, like a, so. a green book for hobos. basically. Yeah. Essentially, yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. And there's these kids who would do that and they would jump off the trains and stop at the house. And the reason they jump off the trains over there is because the way the trains move is they, they bend right. The train tracks mm -hmm. bend right in yeah. front of that area. Yeah. It's a big and, curve. Yeah. Yeah. And trains have to slow down right there. So, uh, because they can't make the curve without crashing. So they would slow down right there. And often you would see people with these big backpacks and then they would roll off the train. And then before you know it, they'd walk up to the house and sometimes <laughs> it'd be cool. Sometimes not, <laughs> you know, you never really quite knew how that was going to work out, but you know, it's, but turning and then you, and then you had this group, the BMX bandits who were uh, in there. Yeah. yeah. Tell us about that. Uh, well, those kids are, uh, I mean, they're older than me now, <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, they're great folks. Uh, you know, I'm better friends with one of them, uh, Gabe, uh, who is the one who's interviewed in the, in the book. Uh, Gabe, famous Gabe, Gabe Smith. He's a tattoo <laughs> artist, runs Hula Moon. He's been around for 20 years now, a business that came out of 309. Came to Pensacola from Mississippi. Uh, again, you know, these folks, these Southern punks who didn't fit in where they lived, went up to, and their story is really funny because he and his brother, they went up to Mississippi, they're from Mississippi and people in Mississippi didn't know what to do with these kids with Mohawks. So they decided <laughs> to go find some other place uh, to live. So they went up to Chicago and said, all right, this will, this will be our people. We'll find our people over here. And they found out they were the wildest people over in Mississippi, over in Chicago too. Uh, so they ended up coming to Pensacola because Pensacola was one of the big towns, if you want to call it this, I know it may be a surprise to you, Craig, because you live here, but or li lived here, but it's you know it's bigger than than Meridian. You know, it's bigger than some of these other places <laughs> in Mississippi or these other sure. places. So it's here or New Orleans. And New Orleans might be you know a little More too expensive. wild. And yeah, expensive. And Pensacola <laughs> yeah. might be a nice in between. So yeah, they end up coming over here because they go to shows, they met some people, and then they end up staying over at the house. But by far, we're some of the wildest people mm -hmm. <laughs> there. Yeah, Gabe's chapter is one of my favorite chapters in the book. Uh, <laughs> super, super sweetheart in there, and he apologizes to me all the time for uh, for sounding like a jerk in the <laughs> in the book and uh, being one of the contrarians in there. But he's a super sweet person and also a really big supporter of what we're doing. What did the house look like? Take us inside. What did it smell like? How many bedrooms? How many bathrooms? Where did people sleep? Where did people cook? What did they cook? What was it like living in there? And, and right. how did you deal with the fleas? Oh, no. <laughs> All, right. All right. So it's a two-story uh, two house uh, built in 1911. So I'm not sure if they call those Victorian, but it's Victorian-like. Originally, it was built for... Uh, for people that worked on the railroads, uh, that was, or at least those are the first inhabitants of the house, people that worked on the railroad, because the not only was did it bend around the corner from us, but there was a train station where there's a big hotel there now. And the house has a number of different rooms, in part because of that. Uh, we haven't been able to verify this 100%, but we think that the house had you know, lots and lots of people that worked in the railroad, almost like a boarding house, I guess, uh, for mm -hmm. people that worked there when it was originally built. It has five roughly five bedrooms in the house. What it looked like was uh, when we lived there, you know, was very different than what it looked like originally. Uh, flyers all over the wall, top to bottom, covered in flyers. And that's probably how you can tell what a punk house looks like. So if you've never been in a punk house, uh, <laughs> then it looks like there's punks that live there, that they're covered top to bottom with flyers. Uh, that would be the art that was up there. And then random things, people would find it through stores, uh, random paintings that they liked, or people would add on to paintings that they found, their own personal art. A lot of people that lived there were artists. Sometimes you find just random things hanging up on the wall, like swords or <laughs> things they found in weird places that we couldn't describe. A lot of train stuff because we're right next to the trains and the trains, of course, had a close connection to us in the house. So there'd be things like that would be up on the wall. The bathroom was disgusting, you know, in pretty much every uh, part of it, too. Not just because people could be better in their cleanly habits, but also just because you had so many people that were living there. The there was kitchen. a typewriter in the bathroom, right? Uh, yeah, there was. Yeah, we had a yeah. typewriter because people were always <laughs> writing. I mean, we people asked what we did in the house. What is it like? And thought that people were doing drugs or lots of sex and all that stuff in there, you know. But uh, at least when I was there, you know, that it was uh, a little more Puritan than people might think. But we did have a typewriter in the bathroom at one point and people would they 
went in there to do their business. They do some writing. We were able to put together a whole magazine <laughs> with that uh, too. So it's called the Poop Zine. Uh, uh, but still have the original copy of that. But there was also zines that were in the bathrooms too. So it was covered in there. So the reading material would be everything from anarchist propaganda uh, to personal stories, crush stories, stories about coffee and you know various other zines, personal zines that people wrote, sometimes zines that people wrote in the house and zines they got from all over uh, that they didn't want to throw away. Lots of music stuff. And then the kitchen, the kitchen was the wildest one, though. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you one story about the kitchen. <laughs> I think it's one of the funnier ones. Uh, we always had a problem with mice and uh, had problems with rats because you had a lot of people that were living there. And also because the area, it's an old area, and there aren't too many houses in that area that don't have problems with uh, rats and mice, especially after hurricanes. Well, you, so and you're, you're, close to the, you're close to the waterfront, too. Right? Yeah, we're close so, to the waterfront. So I mean, Yeah, so it attracts them, too. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So they're out there all the time uh, in general. So, uh, and we didn't do a good job to mitigate that problem, <laughs> uh, you know, just by trying our best to compost things, not realizing just throwing the food out the window wasn't actually composting, <laughs> you know. So, <laughs> <Good Lord. laughs> so one time we had this problem uh, because the pilot light on our, uh, on our, <laughs> on the uh, oven had went out. So we had to call the uh, city to come in there and help us turn it back on because we didn't know how to do it. So they sent somebody from the gas company and he came out to turn the light on. So he opened up the lid of the oven and when he opened up the lid of the oven, there was literally a mouse that was burned in half. <laughs> there was uh, one half of a mouse Lord. on one side, one half of a mouse on the other side, and then it was burned right in the middle where that unfortunate mouse was when somebody happened to turn on the Oh my. On the lighter. So the mouse died right there and didn't make a sound apparently. <laughs> you know, so I remember the guy when he opened up and he saw the mouse burned in half and he looked at it and said, I have never seen that before. <laughs> Tell you what, I'm going to turn on this light. I'm going to walk right out of this house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that gives you a little bit of an indication of, of what it was like. There's one chapter in there where one of the uh, one of the interviewees, one of our roommates, Gloria Diaz, uh, says that when her mom came in there, she just saw the kitchen and just burst into tears. <laughs> what have my, what has my daughter done? What has she moved into? But you but, did have some. You had communal meals that you made uh, all there. the time. Yeah, all the time. Yeah, yeah people made food all the time. You know, we we're con- and that's the oh, nice thing about living and, there. And tell the Valentine's Day story. I I, I laughed about that. Uh, <laughs> you know, well, uh, one of the roommates. This happened before I was living there, so I'm retelling somebody else's story. But they had. Uh, it was a Valentine's Day and they wanted to do some kind of communal potluck, some kind of communal uh, get together. So they figure out how to make these these pancakes uh, by making this uh, little uh, like a cookie cutter thing. I think if I remember right, they made it out of um, out of a, co- of a coat hanger and made it into a heart. So they made these heart shaped pancakes. I'm going to show you how sweet everybody was too. Uh, that they made these heart shaped pancakes. So they had this, but we had this big dog. <laughs> it was this beautiful, sweet dog. Uh, God rest his soul. Uh, Grendel, Grendel Boxer. And he would come into the house and uh, Brendel boxers are really bad with the gas. So we had the, everybody had the food. They made all the heart shaped pancakes and everybody was digging it, loving it, eating all this great vegetarian, vegan food. And then Grendel lets out the biggest, (laughs) the biggest, uh, and everybody just scattered. And that was the end of (laughs) of the breakfast. Uh, Right. So, so now was Grendel the source of the fleas or were the fleas more of a continuing uh, problem? Well, it's a continuing problem. You know, what I've learned is with fleas that if you have a cat that you feed, the cats will bring the fleas in. Mm-hmm. But if the cat dies or if you have rats that die, then rat. But flea, where fleas actually move around often is not only on the animals, but then they'll. Uh, but what's good about having an animal is that the animal will keep the fleas to themselves. It'll hurt, kill the dog, uh, kill the cat. I mean, they'll scratch themselves to death, but uh, but they're good with keeping the the fleas to themselves. But once one of the animal goes, moves away, dies, then when the eggs hatch, they're looking for something to jump on. And then they unfortunately jumped on us. Yeah, so we would just go crazy in the house. I remember at one point that we had so many fleas in this one room. We we're trying to figure out ways to, to get rid of them. And we just couldn't figure out ways to get rid of them. We tried... A penny royal, uh, which one of our roommates said was a good idea, and it didn't work. Um, and maybe just the way we did it didn't work. So our whole house just covered in penny royal, uh, but then also it was covered in fleas too. So it was all this <laughs> could work. This uh, like, it looked like you know somebody just grated all this wheat and threw it all over the floor, and we're hoping that that's going to change something. It didn't. But I remember once uh, 
that I tried this, one of my roommates tried it. We literally wrapped ourselves in duct tape and walked into the room where the fleas were the most, hoping that the fleas would jump on us. Duct tape wrapped around, you know, the backwards, so the sticky part would be on the outside, <laughs> hoping that, like flypaper, so the, they would jump oh on my. us and we would get rid of them, but it didn't work. But if anybody's listening to this, said they need to know how to get rid of the fleas. I don't know if the bombs work, uh, dropping a bomb uh, in there, sometimes that works, but actually just vacuuming, doing a lot of vacuuming, that works. Uh, so <laughs> we got to a thrift store, bought a vacuum, and it turns out that actually worked pretty well. You got to do it all the time, but uh, but eventually it worked. What time period are we talking here? When when was the heyday of the 309 punk house? Um, yeah, it's a little tricky to say because, uh, you know, my story and my stories in 309 go up and down and probably everybody has their own. 309. I'm always surprised when people talk about it too, because they'll say that, oh, I went to my very first show in 309, my very first punk show, uh, punk show in 309. I love it so much. And I honestly only went to one show in the house when I was there. The only show I ever went to is when uh, the only other show I went to is when my band played over at the house two years after I moved <laughs> out. But everyone has their own time period and their own heyday uh, for the house. Uh, but I would say generally when it first started, in the early 90s or in the mid 90s uh, or mid 90s to around 2000 ish uh, would probably be a bit of a heyday. Uh, and then if you want to think of this and maybe they're mm, probably about 2004, so probably about a 10 year time frame, 95 to 2005, but other people will say, no, no, the best time in 309 was uh, from 2000, the minute you moved out, Scott, uh, that's when <laughs> cool. Uh, and then, yeah, from the mill uh, until the moment that we had to do our renovations. Yeah. So people have different time frames, uh, but it depends on what you're looking for in the house. So for shows, definitely uh, 2007 until and that's when I moved out uh, 2007 until probably 2017, 2018. And then uh, if you're thinking of uh, family settings, communal things, then that would probably be the periods before that uh, where you just have a lot of really, really close people that are living together. And not to say they went dysfunctional anyway, it was a family, but they can be dysfunctional in the way that a lot of misfits can be. Still, there was always a tremendous amount of love uh, that was amongst just about everybody on some way or another uh, with the people that lived there. They made it a lot different than if you just had a roommate yeah, that you needed somebody to move in there, that you had family. You had people that could live there. And when you know, I had my daughter, when she was born, um, I didn't have her. Of course, my wife did, uh, my partner at the time, Lauren, who has a chapter in the book too. We had built-in babysitters, <laughs> you know, they were living at the house and happy to watch, uh, watch Maddie or happy to, uh, to keep her, you know, while we had to go to work or had to work at the cafe and that kind of stuff. So, well, I think, I think it will surprise a lot of people to hear. Not only was this co-ed, but there were kids in the house. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's kids at different times, you know, there were mm-hmm. kids. Uh, so right before my daughter was born, when, uh, Lauren was pregnant, we had a family that moved into the house and they were punks are friends of ours. And they had uh, two kids or, uh, yeah, the uh, girl, uh, woman, uh, Justine had two kids and she had, uh, two kids and her boyfriend, uh, they were living in the house and they took over this one room. It was one of the larger rooms, but they had loft and bunk bed and all that stuff. And I have to say, it was really great. It was great because the kids were super sweet and it was a nice time to be in the house too, because at different points, you know, it was a little wilder. You know, if you have a lot of people, they're 18, 19 years old and 20 years old, then of course it's going to take on the characteristics uh, of a 18, 19, 20 year olds. But if you have a bunch of 30 year olds that are living there and you got a mom with kids, uh, then it's not going to be wild, you know, in that way, because you're just going to want to protect the kids. And, and a lot of us are really protective of, of the kids. We watched them, we took care of them. And for me, it was great because as Lauren was pregnant, I really hadn't been around kids that much. I mean, I'm the oldest of five kids, so I should say I wasn't around kids. But but when you have younger brothers and sisters, it's a little bit different. Uh, so I had that experience. But honestly, I didn't really know what to do with kids. I always felt kind of awkward around kids. You know, when I talked to kids, I, I asked the mom, you know, said, so can uh, can she read yet? I said, no, she's only one. It's like, when do you think she read? Like, I don't know. I don't have kids. <laughs> I didn't know that kind of stuff. But being around kids over there was great. And kids are super sweet. And it's funny because now, uh, you know, one of the uh, the oldest of the girls, uh, Persenia, she's living or she still lives in Pensacola, but she works over at the cafe. Uh, it's across the street. She's in her early twenties and she sometimes works over there at different times. So it's neat to be able to see these kids as uh, well-adjusted, uh, mostly <laughs> well-adjusted grownups. And even my daughter, you know, who was uh, spent her first days in the house, she is now 16 working at the Waffle House. And when we had to move back into the house to do renovations in the house, after we took it over, uh, she moved into the house with us. So she lived in the house for her first two years and then live back in the house with my son as 16, as 15 and uh, 13 year olds. You bring up an interesting point, and this is very square and unpunk, but who owns <laughs> the house? 
Uh, oh, yeah, that's not point. It's a good question. Uh, actually, on paper, uh, we own the house now. Uh, so oh, okay. we, uh, Lauren and I, you know, own the house okay. now. And that's a, a long, complicated story. But what happened was we were trying to, you know, our main aspect of trying to do the fundraisers, we're trying to get money to build. Uh, so the 309 Punk Project, which is the project that we started to help uh, the help save the house. Uh, to get money. So we're doing all these projects to uh, fundraisers to get the money to save the house. But as you probably know, that it's really difficult to buy a house uh, and to get that and to raise enough money to buy this house in a rapidly gentrifying neighborhood, uh, you know, where the price is going up and it's going up and the landlords were, I wouldn't say desperate to sell it, but they were definitely wanting to sell it very quickly. So um, we didn't raise enough money to get the house, but what we did was we raised enough money to sustain the project in the house. So what the house needed ultimately was just somebody to buy it who would be a caretaker of the house. So that's what we did. Now, you know, that we've moved out of the house, both Lauren and I went uh, back to college. We have professional degrees. I teach at the university. Uh, Lauren, you know, uh, works for the man and we're much better off. We're in a better position now than we were before. And we had uh, surprisingly good credit, <laughs> you know, uh, after living <laughs> at the house for so long, we had good credit. So we were in a place where we could come in and buy the house. But our main goal though, with the 309 Punk Project now is making the house sustainable and viable. So what we did was with all the money that we used for the fundraiser, uh, we were able to make the project itself sustainable and keep it going. And ultimately it'd be great if the Punk Project was able to, to buy the house outright. Uh, and do that. But our main goal is to make sure that the house is, is sustainable. So because if we didn't, weren't the ones to come in and, and buy it, then you know some yuppies would buy it or it'd be condos or it'd be torn down or something else. So, uh, yeah. so we're able to sustain it. So it's punk and unpunk. Uh, one of our friends, you know, when we said that we actually threw our entire life savings into the house, we risked everything that we had uh, to save uh, this house, all of our retirements and everything Boy. else uh, to save it. I uh, said, it's kind of scary. I think Lauren's chapter is even titled that. It's like, scares me even to think about it now. But one of our friends said, that's actually the punkest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Punk, punks with good credit. <laughs> well, that part's not good. Yeah, that'll be my band. Punks with good yeah. credit. Yeah, <laughs> punks with good credit. So how many people live there? How, what's the largest number of people who live there at any one time? Uh, you know, I don't and who know lives there now? Okay, well, uh, I would say maybe the largest number of people that live there would probably be around a dozen uh, people lived there when right before Maddie was born, we had 10 people that were living there in the house, uh, 10 people, including the four kids. Uh, there were 10 people and either two or four dogs. I can't remember, but 10, something like that, 10 people and two or four dogs. So there's a lot of people. It, was, it could be a little chaotic. And I have to say that was a really wild time to be in there too, because Lauren was pregnant and you know we just had so many people that uh, yeah, it was an interesting time, which I write about in there or I talk about in my interview. That wasn't the average. Probably the average would be around five or six people that live there. And there might have been a few more people after we lived there, maybe around a dozen at the most. Uh, and sometimes people were there for a month. Sometimes people were there for several months. And some people were, were there for multiple years. So right now, the people that are living there, we have uh, the last person who's interviewed in the book, who was the last person to live in the house before we did renovations, he's actually the first person to move back into the house. So in a reverse of gentrification, you know, uh, we had to <laughs> kick him out to do the renovations, but then moved him right back in uh, to the house. So he's living there right now. Uh, and Spirit, who's uh, is in the band Resolve and is one of our mainstays uh, in our punk scene, has been around for a long time over there. In fact, I think I booked his very first band a uh, long, long time ago. Uh, so anyway, so he's living over there. And Sean Lanezzo, who's a part of the 309 Punk Project, he's an artist who's living there. And uh, what we're calling them is our our permanent artists and residents. And in the future, what we hope to have is uh, continuous artists and residents who are living in the house. So we just started that program. Are they, do they put on shows or are there still shows to go to at the house? Punk shows? Yeah. Not right now. You know, and that's just because, oh, largely because of COVID you know, is the main reason. So mm -hmm. we took over the house. In our plan to do our very first event was April of 2020. And you probably know what happened in March of 2020. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, just like many dreams of that uh, of that interesting year that went into the toilet. As we we're trying to fish it out of the toilet, we had to figure out all sorts of different things. We, in fact, we had a good friend of ours, uh, Ken Stanton, who was supposed to be interviewed in the book, but he was not doing very well in a number of different ways, uh, unfortunately. And he died in April of 2020. In fact, he was supposed to be my interview. The only reason I'm even interviewed in the book is because he wasn't able to be interviewed. But he died in April of 2020, not of COVID, but just happened to be right at the time. Technically, our very first event was his funeral. 
uh, in the house, and it was wow. a Zoom uh, Zoom memorial for Kent. So there's a picture of Kent in the book. If he passed away before the interviews, then he would be all over that book. People have been talking about him constantly in there, but he was still alive at that time. So it's not as much of a mention in there, but there's a little bit of a memorial. So for those who know him, they'll see his picture in there. His picture with Gloria Diaz, a really funny picture, really goofy person. So, so technically, that was our first event was... Kent's memorial uh, service. Mm-hmm. But we hope to have some more you know, things coming up in the future. We do have events in there. Uh, I will say our first event, if you want to call this a show, was when we did our book release. So when the book was released <laughs> recently, it was after or at the lower side of the of the Delta variant that people felt a little more comfortable going out. They were in Florida too, so who cares? There's no pandemic. Right? Yeah, well, we'll pretend nothing's going on. Everyone's in the house, masks. There's some pretty cool pictures on our on our Facebook page and on our Instagram page, you can look at where you can see uh, a lot of beautiful, almost all masked uh, folks who came together for that. And people are all over the place there. And what's cool about that too, is that at one point, and we bring this up in our discussions, we were, when Aaron and I were on our book tour, that at one point the neighborhood association was trying to kick us out of the house and trying to kick us out of the neighborhood. The neighborhood association was trying to kick out end of the line cafe, which was part of, uh, which was one of the things, the institutions, a vegetarian restaurant, vegan restaurant that uh, you mentioned food earlier, Chad. Mm. Uh, and yeah, you know, all of us learned to cook over in that house. Uh, all of us learned how to cook these incredibly intricate vegan meals uh, off of these experiments we were doing. We even started a, a little uh, restaurant, if you want to call it that, in the house uh, at one point called the Spare Change Cafe. And that eventually turned into Food Not Bombs uh, and then turned into turned into End of Line Cafe eventually. You know, but they tried to shut us down at one point, neighborhood association. And it got so bad at one point that the city council and the mayor had even, or the city council mostly, had asked to do these town hall meetings to talk about what was going on in the in the cafe, which was directly related to us in the house, because people can separate the two things, but what was going on at the house, what was going on at the cafe, because we were doing punk shows and all this other stuff, bringing a bad element into the city. Mm-hmm. Fast forward 20 years, and that same city council gives uh, one of the projects that started in the house, the Open Books Prison Book Project, uh, gives us a proclamation and makes January 16th open books prison book project day uh, end of the line cafe is by far one of the most popular restaurants in Pensacola it's been a mainstay it's hard to even get a seat in there sometimes because it's so busy and so popular a real big draw to people in the neighborhood too the uh, first vegan restaurant in the city and now one of the uh, most established and well-loved uh, in the city 20 years on and when we had our big book launch you know, tons of people were there. Among the people who were there was the president of the Neighborhood Association, uh, <laughs> he and his wife and his son. All of them are wearing 309 T-shirts. And the last people we had to kick off of the porch were <laughs> was the president of the Neighborhood <laughs> Association. He was drinking on our porch. And we're like, dude, it's time to go, man. <laughs> what was the... You don't have re- to go home, but you can't stay here. <laughs> oh, and the city council, and the member of the city council, she was there at our, uh, at our event. Uh, and she what? was there, and she wanted to get her picture taken with us. <laughs> what caused the worm to turn, so to speak, with that relationship with the community where I, I could imagine it was very acrimonious to, to begin with. Who are these people? Communal living. It sounds like communism. It sounds like socialism. <laughs> Punks. I don't want, again, Pensacola. Okay. Uh, despite all of its uh, cosmopolitan nature, where did that uh, turn in the other direction to being celebrated as quirky instead of castigated as quirky? Yeah. Well, you know, honestly, I just say that's persistent. Yeah. You know, it's people stick around. And if you stick around, you put your roots down and you just say you're not going to go anywhere, uh, then you can build you can build those scenes. And, you know, before you know, you have people that might not have liked us initially grew to like us because they got to know us. They realized that it wasn't really as wild, you know, as they think or uh, our restaurant wasn't a. You know, it wasn't a den of hedonism or, you know, or a hotbed of propaganda. Sometimes it was, you know, but it wasn't always, you know, that, uh, or it might've been a hotbed of propaganda, but was also a place for good food. <laughs> you know, it's like, I might not agree with their politics, but they're tofu. But, uh, but I like their vegetarian. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, yeah. You know, so a combination of those things, but you stick around long enough, uh, then people just get used to you and then eventually start to like you. And I say this, you know, too, for 
people that might be listening to this who are in smaller towns or people that are in Pensacola that might be listening to this and wonder why this happened in Pensacola or why can't this happen in Mariana or why can't this happen in Lakanto, Florida, or why can't this happen in other places? So if you stick around in those places and you don't move to New York, you know, if you stick around those places, you don't move to San Francisco or jump on the first van full of kids that are going to New Orleans and go to those places where they got all, they already have enough freaks. They already have enough weirdos over in all those places. Stick around in those places in those small towns and be those freaks and weirdos. And eventually, eventually you'll become a part of, you'll become part of the fabric in there. Cause we're always part of the fabric of these towns. We're always a part of these places, but it's often short lived because these are, you can't be oppressive, you know, people. So I don't want to take that away, you know, and say that it can't be oppressive uh, to folks, you know, who are living here at times. Cause it'd be oppressive if you're queer here in Pensacola, you know, it could be oppressive if you're a person of color sometimes, you know, in these places, you know, for sure, you know, but definitely your people are here too. And you can find them if you're here and it's a lot, sometimes it's easier to, to, put down those roots in places like this. It can be hard sometimes, but it's hard in San Francisco. You know, it's hard in New York, you know, and it's not always this place where you're always going to be loved and accepted. But if you can find your people and you can find those folks, then you can build that family around you and you stick around. And I would say that's the main reason it's because we stuck around. And that's one of the reasons why our house is the oldest, uh, to our knowledge, the oldest punk house in the South, for sure. Uh, almost for sure. I'm pretty sure that's the case. The almost continuously inhabited punk house in the South. Um, to our knowledge, the fourth oldest in the country. Wow. And uh, that's that says something you know, about Pensacola, considering the other is in Oakland, one's in Washington, D.C., one's in Carbondale, Illinois, which I think is kind of interesting. Uh, but then <laughs> us here in Pensacola, who would have thought? Yeah, but yeah, it's because we stuck around. You know, we stuck around. Uh, it doesn't mean we're the oldest, but I mean, it means it's the, uh, I should say, the longest continu- continuously inhabited yeah. uh, that's still here. It's, it's interesting that there was such an overlap, too, of underground movements. You had the zine movement there you had the the uh, uh the punk movement of course you had uh you mentioned about uh the queer community was welcome mm-hmm. there all of those things sort of sort of came together yeah and, it's, and it comes together in the house yeah it's an interesting mix of folks and why they came to pensacola in the first place or how they ended up in pensacola and some of its timing too they just happened to be there at the right time i got close to our scene through a small bookstore called called Subterranean Books. I had started a zine when I went to this one record store, and then I saw a, a zine laying on the table, and I was wondering what it was. I hadn't really seen them before, uh, but when I picked it up, uh, I was immediately drawn to it and thought, oh, I think I can actually do this. And then I realized eventually that this was a way that I could connect with the larger punk scene. And then through that zine, once I started doing it a little bit more in that one record store, then I wanted to put them in other places. So I found this one bookstore downtown called, or on the west side of town at that time, called Subterranean Books. And I started selling my zine over there and I got to know other people that were involved. And they were other misfits, uh, youngsters at the time. I was still in the Navy. (laughs) They were writing zines and they were putting stuff together. But you see one person who's doing it, then you want to try and do it yourself. And before you know it, we had at least at one point we counted around 23 people that were doing zines in the town uh, to the point where Pensacola got uh, took this nickname. And we really run with this nickname too: uh, the zine churning city by the sea. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure the Chamber of Commerce was all over that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, one of the uh, local newspapers over here, they want to make a T-shirt now with that, the the zine churning city by the city, Uh, (laughs) do a little fundraiser for open books uh, called that. So I hope they do. Uh, It's neat, you know, how that that happens. And, you know, that with the queer community, too. It's not like there wasn't one before, but we had the, um, it certainly wasn't born in 309 by any means. But, you know, it has that history that goes back to the 1970s. And there's a great book on uh, actually Memorial Day uh, gatherings. Yeah. Yeah. The Memorial Day gatherings and how that became Mm -hmm. such a big thing in the uh, seventies. And uh, from there, you know, even the reaction to that, you know, became part of the fabric of 309 too, Mm -hmm. how it was right next to one of the major, one of the major gay clubs downtown. And we would often Mm -hmm. go out to the clubs themselves, you know, but then also Mm -hmm. we go out to, uh, to support the people in the clubs when they would get protested by the fundamentalists who would often come out Memorial Day weekend Mm -hmm. too. So there was a lot of things that were always happening you know, at that time. And there's a big convergence of things that were happening. They were really interesting too. You know, um, Aaron in the book, he talks about 
how Pensacola had uh, a gay and lesbian bank, you know, the GNL bank that was downtown. And he was saying that in San Francisco, they didn't have a gay and lesbian bank where it literally says in the title, the name of the book is, or the name of the bank is the GNL bank, you know, so in their outside of their ATM was uh, this big rainbow flag, you know, that was there in the middle of downtown. And it shows you that when we look at Pensacola as a conservative town, that it doesn't really paint the whole thing. And that's why I look at the electoral politics because yeah, it's like this town voted for George Wallace over Richard Nixon in 1968. So, I mean, it shows you uh, the politics of the town on some level, but then you also exclude the number of African-Americans who couldn't vote uh, back yeah. then. You exclude, and nowadays you look at the number of people that can't vote because of uh, criminal actions or people that have just given up on the system because, you know, the system's pretty broken too. And when, then when we look at the electoral politics and we see, oh, the people that we elect, they were elected by less than 20% of the population. So why are we always defined by what 20% or half of the 20% of the population uh, decide to do on election day? You know, for whatever reason, you know, that that's, I mean, I understand why that's the case because it, obviously it's really important, but, uh, and it's an easy way to tell us what it is, mm -hmm. but it doesn't give the whole picture. You know, Pensacola, they, yeah. uh, a gay and lesbian bank wouldn't exist in Pensacola if this was a really conservative town all the time, or this wouldn't be uh, known as the Gay Riviera on Memorial Day weekend, if it wasn't, if it was always a super conservative town, because they don't call Mariana the Gay Riviera, you know, they don't call <laughs> they don't. All, um, you know Panama City for that matter, you know, the Gay Riviera. Uh, they call us that, you know. So why is that the case? It's because these stories are always more complicated, and yeah, a lot of it does come back to three. It does. I would say it comes back to three or nine, but it's definitely three or nine is a part of this, and we're part yeah. of the fabric of that city, and also a part. Um, we're a part of the fabric of. The history of Pensacola, which I will say this too, I find really hilarious and also, uh, well, actually just hilarious that of all of the histories that have been written about Pensacola, academic histories uh, that have been written about Pensacola, or at least published by academic uh, publishers, that we're one of the few uh, that are out there about Pensacola, that people write a lot of books, uh, small uh, presses or local presses, uh, write a lot of history, and we love it, but often comes across as touristy kind of things, you know, and yeah. our theory towards that. But if you go on Amazon, you look at the books that are out there, there's literally just a handful more than a dozen of those. So what I think is in none of the modern time frame, you know, at least in the 21st century. So I think yeah. it's hilarious in that way that when people look back on the 21st century, you know, if human beings are still alive, fingers crossed, that our city, our zine churning city by the sea is in a zine churning city underwater. Uh, but <laughs> if we are still alive in 100 years and we're able to look back at this history and we can see what it looks like, that what they're going to notice of the 21st century is Pensacola was ruled by the punks. <laughs> you know, so it's not the wars, it's not the civil war, it's not, you know, the history of racial violence, you know, yeah. the, you know, but it's the abortion clinic bombings and so forth. Uh, yeah. Currently it's just the yeah. punks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's it. Scott Satterwhite has been our guest. He is the co-author of Punk House in the Deep South, 309punkproject.org to learn more. Thanks for this enlightening conversation on a, on a very interesting subculture, Scott, and continued success with the project. Hey, I really appreciate you, Chad. I really appreciate you, Craig. And yep. yeah, next time you're in Pensacola, <laughs> drop on by, all right? Uh, we'll we'll do. All right. Take care. <laughs> Our kitchen's been cleaned up until it's about there. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll hop off the train and come right over. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be waiting. Okay. Craig, you mentioned, of course, you're from Pensacola. When were you first aware? Obviously, you'd, you'd long since gone by the time this mm -hmm. got up and, and grooving. But when were, when did 309 Punk House uh, first come across your radar screen? I When this book came out, I had oh, no wow. idea. I mean, yeah, I mean, this is this is long after I left. I, you know, I graduated from uh, from college in 81. I came back to Pensacola and worked for the Pensacola News Journal for five years. But in 86, I moved away. And I uh, had no idea any of this stuff was going on, uh, you know, which obviously it, it happened after that. I knew about the very large uh, uh, gay population, gay and lesbian population there, and about the Memorial Day gatherings and so forth. Kind of knew about the zine culture that was cropping up there, as well as lots of other places in Florida. But I had no idea about the punk house at all. And this uh, kind of blew my mind when I first read through the book. But it's it's a fascinating look at one of the things that it, and one of the things that reminds you is people have these stereotypical ideas about what Florida's like and about what Florida cities are like. There are so many layers to these places that that you don't even know about and that run counter to your stereotypes. And so yeah. people should be more open to the idea that, you know, maybe Florida's not what you expect. Maybe there are things going on that you don't know about that would put it in a whole new light.
Yeah, we're about 75 episodes into the podcast. I've never had the chance to say this before. Craig Pittman, welcome to Florida. <laughs> welcome to Florida. 